Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I hope you do. I want to encourage you to open them to 2 Samuel chapter 3. 2 Samuel chapter 3. We have a lot to cover this morning. I don't know what I was thinking when I set it out to cover all of chapter 3 in one message. Um, So we're going to move very quickly this morning. As you're finding your place there in God's Word, I want to welcome all those who are joining us via live stream. As Pastor Steve uh, made mention of earlier, we're so grateful for the technology that we have to put uh, our services online and the many that are ministered to it uh, uh, by that ministry. And so we're grateful for, for you that are watching online and also the venue service right down the hall and Reach Church DeSoto and also Reach Church Paola. Grateful for all of you joining us today. In Second Samuel chapter 3, if you've read ahead, uh, you read through this story and uh, you see just about uh, every sin of man represented in this one chapter. It's an incredible mess. You, you may have, if you've read ahead, thought to yourself, what in the world are we going to do with this? That's the question I've been asking myself all week. What are we going to do with this? It's, it's a mess. There's all kinds of maneuvering, deception, adultery, sexual immorality, tears, crying, mourning, murder. It's a mess. But in so many ways, I think it's a pretty good representation of our own lives. Our lives sometimes are mess. We're messy individuals. We find ourselves in relationships and families that can sometimes get messy and in countries and nations that can sometimes be a mess. And what we're reminded of in this chapter is that even though there's a mess here, God is still at work. God is sovereign. God is in control. A lot of power grabbing in the midst of this this chapter. People want to control the circumstances to achieve their own desired outcome. And we're reminded again and again that God is the one who is in control. It's only God who has absolute power. Power has been defined as the the disparity between uh, a person's intention or desire to bring something about and the actual ability to bring it about. That's power. So the lesser the disparity, the greater the power. So a person who says, I want to build a house and can actually build a house is more powerful than the person who says, I want to build a house but can't build a house. So the lesser the disparity, the more the power. There's only one person in whom there's no disparity, and his name is God. Because God does whatsoever he pleases. So in the midst of all the political maneuvering of these men within this chapter, they're going to collide against the one who is in ultimate control, and that is God. And they will learn, just as we have to learn, that salvation only comes not when we try to grab power from God, but when we submit our lives to his ultimate power and control. So with that in mind, let's, let's pray. We'll work our way through this chapter. Father, we thank you for your word that speaks so plainly to us. Even these ancient texts, God, that, that, that are relevant and practical to our lives. And I pray this morning by your spirit, you'd make the principles of this text very clear. God, give it with simplicity, Lord, so that we could understand it and not just know it and put it in our heads, but that we'd, we'd apply it to our lives, that we'd not, not just be hearers of the word, but we'd be doers also. And God, I pray for anybody here that doesn't know you, God, I pray that they would uh, submit their lives to you today and the only true and perfect king who is King Jesus. Lord, direct our attention to him, even through this text. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, look with me at verse one. It says, now there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, and David grew steadily stronger 
But the house of Saul grew weaker continually. Sons were born to David a Hebron. The first born was Amnon by Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess. And the second was Chiliab by Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. And the third, Absalom, the son of Makkah, the daughter of Atalmei, king of Geshur. The fourth was Adonijah, the son of Hagith. And the fifth, Sheptiah, and the son of Abtal. And the sixth, Ithrium, by David's wife, Eglah. These were born to David at Hebron. So here is David at Hebron, and it says that... that, that the house of Saul is growing weaker. The house of, uh, of David is growing stronger. This is a fulfillment of Hannah's song at the very beginning of 1 Samuel, the beginning of this book, that God raises up and God puts down. What's interesting about this is, is that David is growing stronger despite the fact that, that the odds are stacked against him. Uh, Israel, the house of Saul, the north, um, that is going to be controlled by Ishbosheth and, and ultimately Abner, they got 11 tribes on their side. David only has one tribe, the tribe of Judah, and yet David will continually grow stronger with all these, the odds stacked against him. Why? Because if, if God be for us, who can be against us? A king is not saved by the size of his army. And so God is on David's side, and God has declared that David will be king. So regardless of how many tribes are against him, God is raising him up in accordance with his perfect will and God's will and his plan and his purposes will not be stopped. So David is growing stronger and and yet when we see this, we see the blessing of God and God raising David up, we're immediately confronted with these multiple wives and and it hits us right in the face and we we look at this and in fact it's it's somewhat interesting to me that the scripture doesn't uh, automatically identify this as sinful behavior because we know that it is. You say, well, how do we know this is sinful behavior? We don't have time to go there and look, but jot this chapter down. Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 through 16. God gives commands concerning the king that would be over Israel. And it says to him, you will not collect for yourselves horses. You're not going to go down to Egypt because your, your security and your hope is not going to be in the size of your army. And you're not to accumulate a bunch of wealth for yourself because your security and your hope is not going to be in your wealth. And you're not going to collect a bunch of wives. You're not going to take multiple wives. It was forbidden for the king to engage in this kind of activity because having multiple wives was a means by which you establish your political reign. You would create an oligarchy by which your your family and all your relatives would control everything. And God says, you're not going to do that as my king. You're going to be forced into a situation where you have to trust in me and me alone. That's why I told him in the midst of that passage, you're going to put the word of God in front of you and you're going to read my word every day. And you're going to be reminded that I am your only source of hope, not all these other things. David engages in this activity, and yet God continues to give him sons. And it's, it's a reminder to me that, that, listen, just because you may know some measure of God's blessing on your life is not always a good indicator that your life is pleasing to God. Do you hear that? Just because you may know some measure of blessing upon your life does not ultimately mean that you're walking in faithfulness. What is the measure of our faithfulness? It's the word of God. Am I being obedient to God? So here we see David um, engaging in sinful activity. He's, he's a flawed leader. This is a man who will point us to Christ, but he's a shadow of Christ. And there's a lot of dark spots in the shadow of David. And this is one of them. And, and God does not immediately bring punishment into David's life, does he? And it's the same with our lives. But you know this, whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. And you, also, you always reap later. And you always reap more. 
Wouldn't it be a lot easier if every time we sinned, God just made our teeth fall out and we knew we were in sinful behavior? Boy, we'd all be toothless, wouldn't we? But God didn't work that way. And sometimes our sin doesn't have immediate consequences, and so it will be with David. But it's interesting here, even amidst the blessing of these sons, it's, it's not all perfect even here. I mean, think about this. Number one, he takes a pagan wife. They, takes the daughter of the king of Gesher. That's a pagan wife. That was strictly forbidden. But these sons that God is going to give to him, first of all, he's got seven years, six wives, and only six children. Now, you do the math, all right? I would expect a lot more children with six wives in seven years. God gives them six. In fact, the way I thought about this, God gives him as many children as he probably would have if he'd have just had one wife. So he's not going to get ahead. He thinks he's getting ahead by gaining control of his life. But God said, I'm in charge. And I'm going to give you what I give you. And the fact of the matter is, these sons born to a bunch of these wives, listen, they're going to cause him all kinds of problems. Amnon's going to be a rapist. Um, Absalom and Adonijah are going to lead mutinies, and both of them have to be executed. Listen to me this morning. It may not reap immediate consequences, but sin always has consequences. You may think you're getting away with it, but sin always has consequences, and you're gonna bump up against the reality of a God who is in control, and if you sow immorality, you're gonna bump up against the reality of a moral God, and what you sow, you will reap, because God will not be mocked. And even David doesn't get a pass. David doesn't get a king's ex. He's not immune just because of his position. So we look on, David here is growing stronger in spite of some of these shadows of sin. And look at verse six, it came about while there was a war between the house of Saul and the house of David that Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. Now Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, why have you gone into my father's concubine? Then Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth and said, am I a dog's head that belongs to Judah? Today I show kindness to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not delivered you into the hands of David. Yet today you charge me with a guilt concerning the woman. May God do so to Abner, and more also, if as the Lord has sworn to David, I do not accomplish this for him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and to establish the throne of David over Israel and over Judah, from Dan even to Beersheba. And he could no longer answer Abner a word because he was afraid. And Abner sent messengers to David in his place, saying, Whose is the land? Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you to bring all Israel over to you. Here is Abner. We've seen this time and time again, but Abner is motivated by one thing, himself. He's motivated by one thing, his own selfish ambition, and he has a plan. I'm gonna raise up Ishbosheth. He's a direct descendant of Saul. He's one of Saul's sons. I'll raise him up as a puppet king. He's a weak man. I'll use him to accomplish my purposes, and, and I'll establish myself as, as in control over this nation as I lead the army and I command it in its battles and in its victories. And at the right time, I'll, I'll usurp the authority of, of, of Ishbosheth. I'll, I'll usurp his authority. I'll kick him out of the way. I'll be, keep, become king over these 11 tribes. I'll conquer David, and I'll be king over everything. That's his plan. In other words, he's saying, I'm in control, regardless of what God has determined, that David would be the anointed king. I'm going to do what I'm going to do, and I'm going to bring about my, my goals, not God's. And so here he is, and he's playing out in this plan, and he takes Rizpah, uh, Saul's concubine, as his own wife, goes into her. And uh, 
this in Scripture. Whenever uh, uh, a man would take another man's concubine, there's all kinds of mess. Believe me, it's messy here, all right? But a man would take another man's concubines, it was a demonstration that I'm in control over that man. That's what it was a picture of. In fact, we see many instances of this. You remember Absalom when he leads the mutiny over David and David leaves and Abner, or, or Absalom is there. You remember Absalom will go on the rooftop and go into David's concubines in the presence of all of Israel. What was he displaying? I'm now in control. I'm in charge. And later on, it will be Adonijah who will ask uh, Bathsheba to, to, to ask Solomon if he can have Abishag, who was David's concubine, as his wife. And so Bathsheba goes to King Solomon and says, hey, your brother Adonijah, he wants to take Abishag as his wife. It's no big deal. Why don't, you, why don't you let him have her? You remember what Solomon says? Why don't you just give him the whole kingdom? Because that's essentially what he's doing. You remember what Solomon says there? He's got to die. Because he's trying to take over. That's what he's trying to do. And so what, what, what Abner is doing here and taking this concubine, it's a power play. It's a power maneuver. I'm now you're going to usurp. I'm going to take over. I'm going to control. Well, Ishbosheth calls him out on it. I don't think he expected that. But isn't it interesting that Abner plays the, the card of being righteously indignant? He, he, he sets himself up as saying, well, how dare you accuse me of such vain things when he knows in his heart that's exactly what he's trying to do. Am I a dog's head? Dogs in the Old Testament don't get a good name. I'm my dog lover. They don't, get a good, uh, they don't get good press in the Bible. But am I a dog's head? Meaning you think I'm a traitor. Are you kidding me? You excuse me. I, you have nothing. And when he says to him, you would have nothing apart from me. Is that not an arrogant man? He looks at Ishbosheth and says, you'd have nothing apart from me. And now you've done gone and ticked me off. But see, here's what, it, what does Abner know? Abner knows he's losing anyway. See, his plan was to take the 11 tribes and conquer David and one tribe of Judah. And he's losing because you can't stop God from achieving his purposes. And he begins to realize, rather than trying to defeat David, I'll just go join him. And maybe if I join up with David, I'll have a good position. And I'll get to keep my 401k, and I'll get to keep my good insurance plan. I'll have a good, good role, and maybe I can be high up in his kingdom. And I know he's going to win at this point. And so, in a moment of frustration, he says, I'm just going to deliver everything over to David. I'm going to switch sides. So here you begin to see Abner go over. And now he's going to, he has not recognized David as the Lord's anointed. He knows it in his heart. He knows David. He even says it here. But he's not recognized. But now he will, he will go over and he will, to some extent, submit to David as the Lord's anointed. Is this because God has somehow worked in Abner's heart to reveal the fact that he's futile in his efforts to try to control the situations and he needs to submit to God and to submit to the Lord's anointed and he's got a pure heart before the Lord? Not a chance. His motivation is not righteous. His ambition is his own selfish desires. Are there people that still do that today? that only obey the word of God when it's convenient and advantageous to their life. That's certainly what Abner's doing. Oh man, I'm, I can use God here. And obedience is now convenient to me, so I'll submit to him in order to gain what I desire to achieve. And so he goes over to David, he sends word out. It's interesting, if you look at verse 12, whose is the land? Abner sends messenger to David. Whose is the land? There's a... There's a Conflict between the commentaries as to what is meant here. Is he saying to David, David, the land's yours. Who's his land? David, it's all yours. Is he flattering David? Or is he saying, who's the land's? Meaning, David, you know I'm actually in control of everything. And uh, I can make it happen for you. I'm the deal, I'm the deal breaker. I, 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 he read the art of the deal. You know, he, I, I can make it happen for you. 
I can bring it all together. And I don't know which one it is, but in either situation, it's, it's an act of arrogance and deception on the, the part of Abner, again trying to manipulate and control circumstances to attain and to achieve his own desired outcome. Well, look at the response of David. In verse 13, David said, good, I'll make a covenant with you, but I demand one thing of you, namely, you shall not see my face unless you uh, first bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come to see me. So David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, give me my wife, Michael, to whom I was betrothed for a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband, from uh, Paltiel, uh, the son of Laish, but her husband went with her, weeping as he went and followed her as far as Baharim. Then Abner said to him, go, return. So he returned. To me, this is one of the saddest pictures within this whole chapter. You got David here, and he says, okay, I'll make a covenant with you, but I want one thing. I want my first wife. I want Michael. And um, as I read this and studied this, I would love to tell you that this is, um, there's some deeply romantic emotions involved in David's request of his first wife, Michael. But the more I say this, the more I look at the context, I don't think that has anything to do with this. It has to do with the fact that David wants to unite the kingdom and he knows that I was given Saul's daughter as my wife and it's a recognition that Saul knew that I was supposed to be king. Saul recognized me as the king and he gave to me this woman, Michael, his daughter, as my wife And she's mine, and as a demonstration, it's a political maneuver to unite the kingdom in a demonstration that Saul even recognized me as king. There is no, in my mind, there is no romantic involvement. He just added another woman to his harem for his own political gain. And it's interesting because who does he he send the request to? This is what tells me it's politically motivated. He doesn't ask Abner to get her. Who does he ask to get her? Ishbosheth. Why would he ask Ishbosheth? Ishbosheth isn't even in control. He asks Ishbosheth because he's of Saul's family. And I want the family of Saul to publicly recognize that I was done wrong and I'm the rightful king over Israel. And so they go get Michael. And I don't know all the circumstances, but the picture there is so sad as this Paltiel. And I don't know, listen, Paltiel was probably in the wrong to some extent. He knew that she was David's wife and yet he took her. Saul was in the wrong to give her to Paltiel. There's a lot of sin here. But the consequences are so sad. You see a broken home, a broken family here, all because of political maneuvering and the unfaithfulness and the sinfulness of man. And again we see in this chapter, even in David, the man after God's own heart, even the Lord's anointed, the one we love and respect in so many ways, was a flawed man, and sin has consequences. It's messy. It's ugly. Well, the... Narrative goes on, it says in verse 17, now Abner had consultation with the elders of Israel saying, in times past you were seeking for David to be king over you. Now then do it, for the Lord has spoken of David saying, by the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Abner also spoke in the hearing of Benjamin. In addition, Abner went into the hearing of David and Hebron, all that seemed good to Israel and to the whole house of Benjamin. Then Abner and 20 men with him came to David at Hebron and David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. Then Abner said to David, let me arise and go and gather all Israel to my Lord the king that they may make a covenant with you and that you may be king over all that your soul desires. So David sent Abner away and he went in peace. 
Abner here, he, he's now commissioned out to go bring all of Israel under the headship of the Lord's anointed, King David. And he goes out, and what I put in the, in the margin is Abner preaches the gospel. Because that's essentially what he does here. You know, he goes out to the nation, he says, you guys all know that David is the king that you wanted. He's the guy who laid down his life. He's the guy who stepped in between you and the enemy and defeated Goliath. He defeated the enemy of death. He's the one who conquered Goliath. He's the one who conquers the enemy. He's the savior that, you're, that you've wanted. Now make him king. Submit to him. Submit to the Lord's anointed. I can tell you, this is a great preacher. He's a Jewish Billy Graham right here. He's calling the nation to submit to the Lord's anointed and it's beautiful preaching. And God uses it, doesn't he? God uses Abner. Isn't this interesting? Abner, this deceitful, evil, immoral, deceptive man who's only in it for his personal gain, God will use him, even in his deceptiveness, to preach the gospel to the nation and bring it underneath the headship of the Lord's anointed King David. Is God not good that he can use? What did Paul say to the Philippians when he, they were t- he was told there's all these people preaching Christ for various reasons? He says, um, it's true, some preach Christ from envy and selfish ambition, but others from pure motives. Remember what he says, but whatever way, what does it matter? Because Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice. You know what we rejoice in? Not in Abner, but in a God who's in control and can use anybody he wants to bring about his purposes. So he, he unites the nation, and they, he, then he goes to David. He got 20 men with him because he's a little scared, and he's probably scared of who? Probably scared of Joab. Probably remembers this guy who... He's pretty upset with him because he killed his brother. And he comes to David, and David throws a feast. It's interesting. David will, you know what, David, is so amazing to me. David, throughout this, all this episode, he hates this war. David didn't want anything to do with this civil war. I think it grieved his heart to see brothers in this same nation fighting against one another. And even though I have no doubt in my mind that David knew that Abner was a man who had selfish ambition in his heart, all that David really cares about is bringing reconciliation to this nation. And so if this is the means by which God so chooses to use, I'll submit to it. He throws a feast, has a gathering, sends him away in peace. What a beautiful moment there for the nation. It looks like we're gonna head in the right direction and God's using this evil, deceptive man. Now, if you're not careful here, you get to the end of that verse and... There's Abner, he's manipulated, maneuvered, deceived, lied, done all kinds of immoral activity, and here he is, he's made an agreement, he's got a new job, he's gonna be brought into David's army, he's going away in peace, and it looks like Abner won. I mean, if you just stopped right there, you'd say, boy, evil and deceitfulness and manipulation actually pays off sometimes. But it doesn't stop there, does it? Boy, Abner may be deceptive, but he's about to meet up with somebody, isn't he? As I like to say, God's got a board for every behind. (laughs) You remember Jacob? He was a deceiver. And then he ran into a guy named what? Laban. And he met his match. Well, Abner's about to meet his match. So we see in verse 22, and behold, the servants of David and Joab came from a raid and brought much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David in Hebron, for he had sent him away and had gone in peace. 
Joab and all the army that was with him arrived. They told Joab, said, Abner the son of Ner came to the king. He sent him away. He's gone in peace. Then Joab came to the king and said, what have you done? Behold, Abner came to you. Why then have you sent him away? And he's already gone. You know Abner the son of Ner that he came to deceive you and to learn of your going out and coming in and to find out all that you're doing. So Joab comes. Somebody had to tell him at some point. They've come in from some raid. We don't know where. They got spoiled. It's gone well for them. But Joab learns that Abner's been in the camp. Abner, of all people, is coming to the camp and the king's done a feast and he's gone away in peace. Are you kidding me? We let this scoundrel in here and we let him go without killing him? And he's very audacious, in fact, very disrespectful in the way in which he addresses King David. He's mad. And he makes it appear as though, David, I'm really interested in your security and your protection, but what is he really interested in? He's interested in vengeance. He wants revenge. He wants to take matters into his own hands. He's been waiting for the moment to kill Abner. And he is uh, just blown away by the fact the guy was there and I didn't get a chance to take him. And he doesn't get from David what he wants. We don't know how David responds, but it's apparent. He doesn't get what he wants. And that was hopeful that David would get a command to go get him and you kill him. But I didn't get that. Well, look on. It says in verse 26, when Joab came out from David, he sent messengers after Abner, and they brought him back from the well of Sirah. But David didn't know it. All throughout this, we're going to see this. He's going to go behind David's back. David's not involved in this. So when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside into the middle of the gate to speak with him privately. And there he struck him in the belly, so he died on account of the blood of Asahel, his brother. Joab here commits murder. Now, to some extent, it might be the execution of God's justice, but it's not done in, the, in a righteous fashion or a righteous way. He brings uh, Abner to, to Hebrew. Remember, we talked about Hebrew is a Levitical city. It's a city of refuge. It's supposed to be a place where you could find security when, when you're in a situation of trouble. And so I would think that Abner, maybe he thought, well, I'm going to go back to Hebrew. I'm supposed to be safe there. But Joab deceives him, says, hey, Abner, let's take a little walk over here. I'd like to talk to you. He takes him in the middle of the gate When the moment is right, he pierces him through with a sword. Asahel died in battle. Abner had warned Asahel to stop from from chasing him. But in the midst of battle, Asahel died. This right here is cold-blooded murder. And it is sin. It It is Joab saying, I'm going to get my revenge however I want to get my revenge. I'm in control. I'm in charge. I'll do whatever I want to do without repercussion. Verse 28, afterwards, when David heard of it, he said, I and my kingdom are innocent before the Lord forever of the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. May it fall on the head of Job and all his father's house. May there not fail from the house of Job one who has a discharge, who, has, uh, who is a leper, who takes hold of a distaff, or who falls by the sword, who lacks bread. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had put their brother Asahel to the death in the battle of Gibeon. This wasn't about protection of David. It says it right there. They did this for revenge. And what does God's word say? Vengeance is mine. That's not your job. You leave it to me. You submit to me. You let me take care of that. And Joab here has taken matters into his own hands. It says him and Abishai. How is Abishai complicated in this? Ab- uh, Abishai's sin is that he was silent. Did Abishai Abishai know exactly what his brother Joab was going to do? Yes, he did. What did he do about it? Nothing. And God says, you're guilty too. And David says, I'm mad. And David now is in a bad spot because his top commander, 
his top commander in his army has committed blatant sin before the nation. Now, he's killed a man who was not holy, not a holy man by any, any stretch of the imagination, but it doesn't matter. His top commander, Joab, has sinned, and now it's put David in a really bad spot. And how will David respond? Well, I'll tell you how David's going to respond. He's going to respond as a leader should respond. He's going to say, I don't care who it is. When you sin, it's a sin, and there's consequences. And so David is going to do something that's incredibly critical in his reign. He's going to lead the nation to weep and mourn over Abner's death. And the fact that it was brought about in a way that was sinful and not commensurate with the word and will of God. So look at what it says. Then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, tear your clothes, gird on sackcloth, and lament before Abner. He makes Joab and his brother Abishai participate. How humbling for them. And King David walked behind the, the buyer, that's the body, Thus they buried Abner in Hebron. The king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner, and all the people wept. The king chanted a lament for Abner and said, Should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound, nor your feet put in fetters. As one falls before the wicked, you have fallen. Meaning he, uh, he got snookered. He didn't die a valiant death. He was deceived. Verse, uh, and all the people wept again over him. Verse 35, and then all the people came to persuade David to eat bread while it was still day. But David vowed, saying, may God do, do so to me, and more also, if I taste bread or anything else before the sun goes down. Verse 36, now all the people took note of it, and it pleased them, just as everything the king did pleased all the people. David here is saying, we're gonna hold up a righteous standard regardless of how it affects me and the, the men around me. I have to call out sin. And guess what? You know what I think people want? They want Leaders who will hold to a standard of truth regardless of who it affects. That they don't play favorites. Sin is sin, even when it hits close to home. And I'm gonna call it out, and it's gotta be dealt with. And then it says, so all the people, in verse 37, all Israel understood that day that it had not been the will of the king to put Abner, the son of Ner, to death. Then the king said to his servants, do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? I'm weak today. That's a hard phrase to translate and even know exactly what it means, but I think to some extent David is saying, this pains me. David was pained to see conflict and sin amongst men that he loved. He says, I'm weak today. And he said, these men, these sons of Zariah are too difficult for me. He's saying, these guys have become a thorn in my flesh. May the Lord repay the evildoer. Who's the evildoer? Joab, he's calling him out. May the Lord repay the evildoer according to his evil. Listen, I wanna conclude very briefly here. Bear with me for just a moment though. I wanna tell you again, there's so much in this text. We could have spent five weeks on this chapter. But my goal is not to give you all, all that's here. My goal is to give you a taste of God's word so you go home and read it for yourself. So go home, do some work. It's a great chapter, but I wanna focus in on one thing because this is what stood out to me. Throughout this chapter, throughout this chapter, we see a power struggle. Abner desires power. He wants to rule, wants to bring it about in his own purposes, in his own ways, but he will ultimately fail. 
Joab wants control. He deceives and he maneuvers to bring about his purposes and his goals, but he'll ultimately fail and his sin later. Will, will it catch up to Joab? Yeah, he'll be executed by Solomon. His sin will catch up to him. David, even David, the Lord's anointed, who we love in so many ways, points us to Christ. Even he is engaging and maneuvering to bring about a desired end. The, the, the chapter is just filled. This is what, what hit me over and over again. It's a power struggle. Everybody desiring to control the circumstances. And yet underlying it all is this truth that man does not rule. Might does not rule. God rules. God has absolute power. God has absolute control. And yet as I read this, I don't know about you, but what convicted me is that oftentimes what I see in them and their struggle is my struggle. I think to some extent it's our struggle. In so much of our life, I think we are just like Abner and Joab and even David. To some extent, we want to control the outcomes of our lives. We want to create our own future and our own desired ends. But at some point or another, guess what? We run into the reality that God is in control, that there's a power and a God who transcends and oversees our lives according to his will and his purposes. And can I tell you, we hate this, don't we? The idea that we are not in control drives us nuts. We're control freaks. We want to control everything. And you see it. Don't we see this in some people? We all see them. Some people, it's very obvious. In whatever situation they're in, they got to be in control. You met that person? You, see, you can see them coming a mile away. Whatever situation they're in, they got to be in control. But you know what the fact is? We're all that way, just some of us are better at hiding it than others. We all want to, to be in control. It's, a, it's embedded in us through the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden. You remember the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden? They were given to some extent a lot of control to do whatever they wanted, but they couldn't do one thing. Ultimate control minus one. And guess what they wanted to do? The one thing they were told they couldn't do. And make no mistake about it, it wasn't just about a tree or fruit, it was about control. We want what God alone has. We want ultimate control, and we will not be happy until, what, until we have what God has. And that sinful nature is embedded into all of our hearts, and I think it's pretty much the root of just about every conflict in our life is that we want to be in control. And you know what's scary about this, especially in young people? What's scary about this is, is we, we have a lot of power. And if a young person gets some measure of success, maybe in their educational life or in their vocational life or in their relational life, or you know what? They'll begin to create the illusion that they actually are in control. But here's what I know. Listen to me. Here's what I know. Sooner or later, every individual is going to run up against the fact that they're not in control. And you will either learn it in your educational life, or you'll learn it in your vocational life, or you'll learn it in marriage, amen, or you'll learn it with your children, that you're not really in control, are you? And if you don't learn it in your children or marriage and in your job life, guess where you will learn it? You'll learn it in your body. 
You aren't in control. And you'll ultimately, it's why I don't think we, any of us like to talk about death. Because death is the ultimate reminder. You're not in control. God is. And we don't like that. The idea that there's someone who transcends our lives and is working his purposes. There's some people out there that'll deny God. I remember an individual who said, you know, you believe in God, therefore for you, God is real. I don't believe in God, so therefore for me, God's not real. Let me give you an illustration. Imagine you run into a building. The building is on fire. The building has come down, and you see a man in that building, and you say to him, sir, this building is on fire. It's about to, it's about to collapse. And that man said to you, well, well, for you it's hot, so the fire's real. But for me, it's, it's not hot, so that fire's not real. You would say to him, sir, I don't care what you feel. You're about to collide with the reality of a building and a fire that's gonna, it's gonna take down your life. Listen to me. God is real whether you wanna recognize it or not. And the reality and the truth and the power of God is eventually going to collide with you. You are on a collision course with God. You're gonna have to deal with him some point, someday, down the road. You're on a collision course with God. You and I don't have absolute control. The things in your life that have been given to you, they can be taken away just by like that. And as time goes by, our insecurity, our desire for power becomes obvious. I think this takes place over time. Give me an illustration. Imagine one day you're, you're gonna dress up like a state trooper. You're not a real state trooper, but you're gonna pretend to be a state trooper. You go out into a small town dressed up, and you got your nice little car, and you got tremendous power, and you're happy because you can drive however you want, you can do whatever what you want, everybody seems to recognize that you got power. But you're always a little insecure. Why? Because you know there's a real state trooper out there. And one day you see that real state trooper and the existence of the real state trooper, it threatens your life. And the closer that state trooper gets, the more insecure you become. And then that state trooper starts asking some questions and you get insecure. And not only do you get insecure, you get really upset. And the fictional nature of your power and authority becomes obvious in the light of the true reality and the true authority. And listen to me, the older and older you get, the more your life comes closer and closer to the reality and the existence of a God who is sovereign over you. That I don't, this idea that I don't need God, that I don't need to submit to God because I'm in control and I can bring about my own desires and my own ends. As God closes in, eventually you begin to see that under everything you are tremendously insecure and afraid and you need and want power. And we all want power, but power will not save. Even if you gain some power in this world, a king, Psalm 33, this is where I went to this week, Psalm 33, a king is not saved by the size of his army. No matter how much power, no matter how much wealth you gain in this world, listen to me, it cannot save you. In 1932, in Chicago, there was a group of seven men who gathered in one place. Those seven men, seven men, representing those seven men, was more wealth than in all the U.S. Treasury. That was the 
centralization of power in America in 1932, seven men. But in 15 years, three of those men had committed suicide. Two of them were about to go to prison or were in prison and two more were about to die broke and penniless. Can I tell you something today? Power and wealth cannot save you. A king is not saved by the size of his army. Salvation comes by laying our lives down. Salvation comes when we surrender and submit all of our lives to the absolute control and power of King Jesus. And when you attempt to grab power from God, you get more and more afraid as life goes on. When you submit to God and his power and his control, you become less and less afraid as, as life goes on. When you submit to God's power and obey him, the fear slowly subsides because when, when you submit to him, he becomes a shield for your life. So interesting as you see this. Man beginning with Adam, we've always tried to be God. And in every situation, we always fail miserably, don't we? But you know the beauty of the gospel is, God became a man and he succeeded. Jesus Christ, who is God, you know what he did? He submitted and surrendered his life to God the Father. He was perfectly obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He died on the cross for your sins and mine. And he achieved a way of salvation for all of us through his life, death, and resurrection. And you know how you know his salvation? You surrender and submit all of your life to him. You say to God, I'm tired of trying to be in control. I'm try, tired of trying to be God. I'm tired of, tired of trying to, to achieve my own outcomes. I'm gonna surrender to your will and your purposes. But you know what? For so many people, they always have viewed God as their enemy, as if God is up there and he wants to control your life in order to make your life miserable. I think that's how most people view God. Well, God just wants to make my life ab absolutely miserable. Can I tell you today? Here's the beauty of the gospel. When you look at Jesus on the cross and God's love demonstrated in Jesus who died for you, you know what you're beginning to realize? He's not your enemy. He's not a God who desires to control your life for, to make your life miserable. He's a God who loves you more than you can possibly comprehend. And when you begin to grasp the nature of his love demonstrated on the cross, guess what? It becomes incredibly easy to a God who would lay down everything for you to lay down all of your life in reverence and worship for him. Him. that's the beauty of the gospel I don't know where you're at today but if you've never surrendered your life to King Jesus I encourage you today to admit that I'm a lousy sinner and at the heart of all of this was a power grab and today I surrender my life to King Jesus I submit to him not just as my savior but as my Lord that in light of the mercies of God I surrender my life I give my life as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable God, which is your spiritual act of worship. But I don't know about you, but it, for, for those of you that are believers, every day I have to die. As every day I see in me a desire to try to take control. And every day I gotta lay it down 
and say, God, forgive me for the power grab of my life. I want to know your salvation and your shield of protection as I just submit to you. Father, we thank you for your word this morning that brings into clear focus a principle that is so true without, within your word that at the heart of every one of us is a desire to control. We see Abner, he's trying to control the circumstances. Joab trying to control the circumstances, trying to bring about their desired ends, thinking that somehow they're God. And in every instance, all their plans are thwarted and we're reminded that you and you alone are in control. Lord, I, I, I pray for the one that's never submitted their life to you. They've constantly maybe been trying to control their life, control the outcomes, but maybe today they bumped against the reality that they're not in control. I pray, Lord, that you would so overwhelm them with your love that was demonstrated in Christ on the cross that laying down their life today would be an incredibly easy thing. That surrendering and submitting to you would become to them greater joy than they've ever known before. That through faith in Jesus Christ, they would know security, they would know hope, they'd know peace, they'd know forgiveness. Lord, for those of us that do know you, I pray each and every day we would say together with Paul in Galatians 2.20, for I've been crucified with Christ, and yet I live, that every day we would say, I'm gonna die today to my own desires, my own will, my own desire to control, and I'm gonna release control to you. I'm gonna live for one thing. I'm gonna live for Jesus. Lord, help us. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.